0: The Over the Bonnet Podcast is brought to you by MerryMark Medical, Impey Foam and Rubber, and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is Steve Kitney, owner of the Bee Positive Bee Shop on the Sunshine Coast and mentor to many local amateur beekeepers. What started out as a secondary business to his motorcycle trailer manufacturing operation has now expanded to focus mainly on manufacture of bee equipment and retail sales. And it's a pleasure to have him in the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Steve Kitney, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thanks very much, mate. uh, Good to be here. You've got a passion for bees. Let's find out how it all started.
1: I did the dreaded thing and I went to to the markets one morning and I bought a beekeeping book just as a matter of interest. Like what guys do and ladies do, they, they see a little book and go, oh, a little bit of an interest. And next thing I had um, three hives. And then before I knew it, I had about 80. <laughs> really? Yeah,
0: how did you get to that sort of stage?
1: Oh, it's 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 a accumulation. It just just it it's contagious. That's what I tell everybody that comes in that starts beekeeping. I says, be careful. It's contagious because they go, I only want one. So you go, one going on five, and if they've got three or four, it's got oh three or four going on ten, and that's just how it is. It's you get one, and then you've got three, and. Um, A lot of it will depend on the space um, that they have for their apiary site or apiary sites if they're fortunate enough to have more than one place.
0: You talk about you've expanded to um, sort of zero to 80 hives. How long did that take and and how did it happen? Talk us through the process. Oh, I can't
1: remember. It's like 30 years ago plus. Um, it, It... we had three and a half acres at the time, and it just grew. Every time there was some hives for sale, I'd go and buy them um, from older beekeepers just getting out of beekeepers because they just got too old, you know, um, to manage the hives. Because when I was doing it um, at that stage, it was before small hive beetle, um, which we have now, and everybody was still running full depth supers and that's the way it was and um, a lot of the beekeepers that I bought hives off were in their 80s and some of them in their 90s still beekeeping fine a lot of good knowledge Um, but yeah really dilapidated equipment because unfortunately beekeepers are notorious for being you know short arms and long pockets Uh, (laughs) and, and make the equipment go a long way but it was all good fun, and um, and then along came small hive beetle, and I lost oh, 70, 75 hives to really? small hive beetle. Yeah. And, and not just me, everybody across the board. I think um, the DPI put some stats out a couple of years later that uh, commercial beekeepers lost about 40 percent, and hobbyists lost anything 50 to 80 percent. That's a big number.
0: It's huge. It's huge. And how's it been combated these days?
1: Oh, since then, we've, we've learned how to handle it. But when it came in, it, as the story goes, it came in one of the containers from South Africa on the Sydney Olympics. Oh, OK. okay. And it just got into New South Wales and, and away it went. We didn't know how to treat it. It was a new thing and we didn't know really what it was it just looked like a little beetle and we've gone oh, it's only a little beetle um but it does such devastation and how does it do that oh the beetles fly eight kilometers so it, they can go a lot further than the bees can and they lay their eggs predominantly like i found in the pollen cells and the pollen stores in the in the brood box but not just in pollen stores in honey cells as well and then the, the beetle grubs hatch out and they just eat their way through it and they defecate in it and it just runs down the sides of the frames and in this horrible yellowy mess and it, it just goes across your, your hive until the queen goes we're out of here and then nice pfft, they go because there's nothing left there for them to produce on because it's all taken over by grubs and amazingly the 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 small hype beetle grub is like about ten times the size of the beetle. Oh wow. So uh then the grubs go out the entrance and into the ground, they burrow into the ground and pupae in the ground and voila, another beetle comes out. And and every female beetle can lay four hundred eggs. So it's 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 devastating and it's and it, and it spreads really quickly, because the ecosystem of the
0: bee is fairly
1: fragile. Uh, yeah, it is really fragile. Bees are, are remarkably fragile, um, but they bounce back pretty quickly if you give them some some uh, help and uh, protect them just a little bit. They can bounce back enormously um, with beekeepers' help too. Feed them if they need feeding and and nurture them along, um, but. On the beetles, uh, American beekeepers spend, on an average, about thirty-five to forty dollars per hive per year on sprays underneath their beehives. Wow! Just to kill the, the small hive beetle grubs, and that's a huge amount of money. You're talking about beekeepers that have ten or fifteen thousand hives over there, wow. and you're talking a lot of money thirty forty dollars a hive you know it, it's 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 um, yeah it's been pretty devastating for a professional beekeeper that would be really affecting the bottom line yeah I don't know whether the Australian beekeepers uh, do it like that, that because they move their hives around um, quite a lot and you know as the saying goes you know you're not really a, a big beekeeper until you're a truck driver or <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah, Australian beekeepers, the the bigger ones, they do semi-loads and it's basically chasing the flowers as they go around. Mm.
0: Talk about the magic of the honeybee.
1: What is so special about them? Uh, They produce more food than they can use. Um, One of the best pollinators that we have on the planet. Uh, I think Einstein uh, made a little statement saying that without the honeybees... uh, the humans have about four years on the planet it's it's wow pretty subtle (laughs) Um, modern days i think we could last a little bit longer but it would have a huge impact on
0: our population because of the the pollination they talk about the uh the population of bees being in danger is it uh, as bad as is often written in the media i i would say it's under underrated
1: um uh, it could be a lot worse. Um, I think in Europe, and I'm not sure, but they're going to allow the bee pesticides back again from loving from the chemical companies, just when they're starting to get the bee numbers up in Europe. It's it's a pretty sad thing when the basic bottom line is how important they are, but nobody sort of. There's not enough uh, backing for the bees, not enough powerful backing like a chemical company has uh, in dollar, dollar to spend on, on lobbying to get their products out.
0: The structure of the hive, there's
1: three types of bees in the hive. Mm. How does it all operate? Well, you have the queen bee, which is your, she's just laying eggs, and approximately 1,500 to 2,000 a day, which is enormous. And then you have your worker bees, which run the hive. They look after the hive. New bees that hatch out uh, become nursemaid bees. So they look after the brood and feed the young and and the nursemaid bees. And then they go to becoming guard bees for the hive and uh, cleaning the hive. And then lastly, they become foraging bees. Where they go out and and find nectar and pollen and bring it back to the hive and that's where most of them die is out on the wing because they basically flap their little wings off at 200 times a second wow so the you get an older bee you can actually see the edges of the wings they're starting to fray and and shred and then you have your drone bee which only mates with the queen that's all they're for the male bee Usually, like a lot of lady beekeepers, say typical male doesn't do anything in the hive. A- and if you ever lock your hive up and leave it locked up accidentally for a spare day or two, um, they're the first ones that get bumped off. Uh-huh. Or they'll go and kill them all because they do absolutely nothing except to eat stuff. And they're not, they're not um, stuck to one hive. They come and go out of any hive. So they're a problem for disease spreading. Um, if you had varroa mite or something, which we don't, luckily, in Australia yet, because everybody says we will get it one day, they will transfer it from hive to hive because they just go in and out hives.
0: So they're the tarts of the bee world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you could say that, yeah. How does it work that they do go from hive to hive, where the workers, um, the workers are really... Uh, uh, bound to one hive.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. That's not... Uh, I'm not up to speed on how do they do it, but they... But I've, I've read that they do uh, go from hive to hive as they choose. Um, I don't believe they just go hive jumping. I think they go out looking for them or, or on a mating flight, and if they're not successful, uh, they'll go back to any old hive that they can come across. Because when they mate with the queen, it's like a bee sting it tears their abdomen out and they just die after that so that's their whole purpose is one mating with with a queen and that's it it's all over over
0: that's a a fairly high price to pay (laughs) (laughs) you get that in the insect world when you first got into it you said it was quite contagious um why is that what do you put it down to ah it's just the sheer pleasure of it you
1: know Take yourself, for example. You've got two hives going on, 10 or 12, I hear. So uh, a classic example. It's, you just, it just
0: grabs hold of you. I, I found that um, it is a very relaxing pastime. What do you put that down to? Because obviously you've caught the bug, caught the bug uh, uh, very early on. It's relaxing because you have to, because you
1: can't hurry them. It's, the bees are going to do what they're going to do in their own sweet time. And it just takes time. Uh, when you get your new hive and your new, new hive with its uh, nucleus, it's only four or five frames and you've got to wait for it to build out to its eight or ten frame box. And that's what you've got to do. Just wait. And it's nothing you can do. is going to hurry it up. And Mother Nature if brings some bad weather. It will slow it up. And if there's good weather and lots of flowers come out, it'll speed it up. There's nothing you can do. You just wait. Your weather, very weather dependent though. Oh, they can be, yeah. You know, um, they don't like thunderstorms. A few years ago we had um, a patch of nice weather, but every two or three days we'd have a shower of rain for three or four minutes. That's all it took. And it would just wash all the nectar and the pollen out of the flowers. And then... After two or three days the trees were just getting their nectar and pollen back into the flowers again for the bees and would have another five minute burst of rain. And after a couple of weeks the bees were pretty cranky <laughs> because they were working their little butts off and not, not a lot of return and they just get angry. And what happens then? Oh, they recover, but
0: you just leave them alone. <laughs> Don't go there. How do you know when the bees are angry? What are they doing different? Uh, when you are done a
1: few hives and opened a few hives, you start to hear the tone of the bees. And uh, most of the time when you're robbing the hives, uh, or as other people call it, harvesting, beekeepers call them robbing because that's what you're doing, you're robbing the hives. When you're robbing the honey out, the frames, you can get away with that and it's still usually fairly calm and you can hear the tone of the bees. And then you'll go into the brood box underneath and if you don't keep the smoke up and depending on the mood of what flowers they've been in and da-da-da, you will hear the tone of the bees change quite remarkably. Time to put the box back together and just get out because they get really angry. They're just going to get angry. The smoke masks the alarm pheromone that they put out. So when you're robbing, even without uh, smoke, they can get angry. So that's what the smoke does. It, it masks the alarm pheromone. I think also it may stimulate that there's uh, a fire close by and I've heard that they go and have a feed of honey and get a gut full of honey and they don't sting as much because they can't bend their little bodies. Oh I'm full. (laughs) Yeah basically (laughs) uh, it's it's a good theory true or not I don't know but it's a good story Um, but that's what the smoke does mask the alarm pheromone. Do you do any uh, work in your hives without the smoke? Very rarely I've I've actually robbed hives without using smoke because they were so busy bringing pollen and nectar in um, from a tree that was very close and loaded with really good flowers, uh, a lily-pilly. And they
0: were too busy to worry about me. They were, just, they were just flat out. How do you know when they're on the flow and things are really working well in the hive? Uh,
1: they'll fill up the the frames full of honey very quickly when there's a big honey flow on. I rub my hives... Um, at home and my lily pillies I got a driveway and it's got lily down one side they're not huge three and three and a half meters high but they're quite bushy and they had a really good flowering this year and I robbed all the hives and I had about 20-25 at home and I had these overseas people that my one of my bee equipment suppliers that had never actually managed to have time in the hive so I kept one hive full of honey so we could rob it and do a little demo and they could get a little bit of hands-on and i said well i already robbed the other ones last week or about a week and a half ago so they'll be empty and i'll show you them and i opened up these hives and they were all full after about 10 or 12 days wow they because the flight time the, the trees were only four or five meters away so that's an important thing huge amounts of flowers and huge amounts of nectar and they had filled these boxes up in a week and that, that happens it's not a common occurrence but it does happen at a regular time and usually trees only have a good flowering about once every four years that's
0: pretty, pretty
1: average How's so, the
0: season going this
1: year? Oh, On the Sunshine Coast it's going pretty well but uh, up towards this way, up in Gympie area here, not so well. And out west, not as well. It's very dry out uh, over the range. But you have these patches where they've had a reasonable amount of rain and the flowers are pretty good, but not there's nothing spectacular across the board.
0: One of the things with ants, when they build the little uh, volcano sort of mm-hmm. uh, uh, turret around their, their nest, are bees good weather forecasters? Can you tell that rain's coming through the bees? Well, I don't know, but this year
1: there was an early swarming. Every, everybody had lots of swarms very early in the piece. And about the same time, the Weather Bureau announced that the La Lanino had turned around and the ocean temperatures had changed, so we're, they're forecasting a very wet cyclonic summer. Are they, do they know that already and they're doing early swarmings to get their new colonies that because swarming is a natural occurrence and everybody said it's they're swarming very early this year. Are they doing that early to get their new colonies established before the wet weather turn up? I don't know but it's a funny occurrence that all of a sudden we're having an early swarming
0: and it's going to be a really wet summer. A lot of behaviour that bees exhibit is is quite remarkable. Um, One of the things that interests you about bee behaviour? I'm not one for getting into that. A lot of people
1: do, a lot of my customers from my shop are really into the bees and behaviours, but I just like the honey, looking after them. Um, I'm not not deep into the the infrastructure and what they do and things like that. I find it fascinating that they can build wax and we make they make wax in little tiny flakes I mean they're tiny little flakes um and and a lot of people take this for granted oh it's just beeswax we just make you know candles and and we make foundation in it and I would have it at my shop probably about a ton and a half of beeswax and they secrete these little flakes out of the side of their abdomen and the other bees come and get them and chew them up and make them into comb that they put the honey cells in. And you've got to think about how much is made and I've got a ton and a half and I don't even have a lot just to make sheets of foundation. The the same applies with honey. There's a bit of a, a variant on how much honey a bee produces in its lifetime, but somewhere between an eighth and a twelfth of a teaspoon from one bee—that's its whole lifetime's production. Wow! So when you get your toast or your porridge in the morning, and you go squirt with the old honey pot, and you put two or three teaspoons of honey—that's two or three bees. No, that's that's thirty-six or forty bees' complete lifetimes' production. You just put on your toast. Wow! They—they they give a lot. They, they give a huge amount. The um, it takes a, a a rough figure they've come up with is 500 bees to make a kilo of honey, and they fly equivalent to three times around the earth. Go on to produce that one little tub of honey. Um, it's, it's 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 a huge effort, and and. The younger people go, oh, you just go and buy it from the shop? Like milk, where does milk come from? Oh, the supermarket. (laughs) Same way, there's a a lot of things that people don't realise. I actually put on my honey jars, on my labels on my honey jars that I sell, I put a little side square with, did you know about bee facts? Like uh, how much honey a bee produces in its lifetime? Um, how many times the, the they flap their wings, 200 times a second. Just little facts like that, that people are
0: interested in that, that, that didn't have a clue on how much work goes in honey. It sounds fascinating, but also what fascinates me about them is the fact that there's so many of them, yet they all know what to do. I
1: don't know whether it's we know what to do. I think a lot of people... Uh, come to me and say oh bees are very clever it's instinct it's it's built-in instinct um, of what they do they this bee does this job and that's what it does the queen lays her eggs that's what she does I find it very interesting that it takes 16 days to make a queen bee which lays all the eggs and it takes 21 days for a worker to grow I quite find that quite, quite remarkable. I can't get it over that one. I would
0: have thought it would be the other way around by, for sure, but it's not. I read in a book that apparently the worker bee, the full rotation around the sun is 21 days. And the queen is so it's, it's a, a sun animal. And hence they so uh, they love the sunny days. And the queen is not quite fully sun-developed. And the drone goes, I think, 23, 26 days, I'm not sure of the number, and has more moon influence. If that's the case, I don't know. But it's just interesting that the Queen has the shorter um, development. Yeah, that, that
1: is interesting. I wasn't aware of those um, those combinations of numbers. That's that's a new one to me.
0: With the COVID crisis, do you find that more people are going back to their roots and starting to get interested in beekeeping? I couldn't tell you that one for sure, but we have had a,
1: a big influx and uh, expansion on customer bases. Whether it's a combination of the shop just getting known more, uh and also people looking for something to do. But I wanted to buy a dog, and you can't buy a dog for love for money. Um, And they've gone up in price enormously because there's such a big demand, because people are staying home with it, and they want some sort of companion or something like that. Markets have just gone through the roof because people have abandoned shopping centres like No Tomorrow. And, and starting to frequent marketplaces now. So, yeah, there could be a, a, a bit of a, a turnaround in people's habits and and wanting to do something different. Yeah. But, yeah, the the, the, the the Bee Positive shop is, is going crazy at the moment, it's trying to keep up with everybody wanting, wanting their products.
0: How did it start?
1: Well, I've been beekeeping for a long time, and... Uh, my other business was in a bit of a lull because of the, the economy that goes up and downs and we were in the, in the down at the time and we had the bank manager come out and see us and, and bank managers actually do come and see you if you owe them enough money. So <laughs> <laughs> so we were just talking and I said I'd I, I like to open a beekeeping shop and she just said I can see you really want to do it. Just do it. I've gone, yeah, okay then, let's do it. And but it just took that little nudge, the, the, the bank, Ridge, just do it. And and so the next trip I, I did over to China, because I was already buying uh, equipment over there, I found some beekeeping suppliers and we started a tiny little bee shop. While you were still running your other business? Oh, yes, yes. Tell us about that. Um. I bought a company called Classic Trailers that made trailers for motorbikes. That's all it did. And I turned it upside down. Um, We took away... It was a good product, um, but it it lacked finish. Now, just from previous jobs, um, working in all sorts of places, like I used to work for David Jones, and I used to work for Ford Motor Company in assembling so you just pick up things on how to do things and how to present products for what customers like so we've f- i just finished the trailers off and changed things from aluminium trims to stainless steel um more color variety and in the process of of that i formulated how to make metallic and pearl gel coats, which nobody else knew how to do. There was already the metallic, metallic gel coat like they have on ski boats, which is like you cut, the glitter is, is like you cut it up with a pair of scissors, it's so coarse. But we're talking colors that cars run, the, the, the metallics and pearl coats. And we worked out how to make metallic and pearl gel coats. Can we share? How did you do it? Mind your own business. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny because I had a one of my ex-employees that I actually put on while he had a broken leg. He got a sack, got the sack from his previous employer because he had a broken leg and couldn't come to work. And he came looking for a job, and he says, "I get my plaster off next week." And I says, "You're hired." Um, I just so happened to be looking for a glasser, and He'd done his glass fiberglass apprenticeship or, or his his little before it was an apprenticeship, and really keen and hungry, seventeen year old, keen and hungry to go, and I showed him the glass room that we had. We only had a a tiny little glass room, fiberglass room, and he basically just picked up the ball and ran with it. and a brilliant fiberglasser really brilliant he just 17 yeah he just needed to be let go you know he'd gone to the to school he had learnt all this new stuff and his old old boss and other workers said look we've been glassing for 25 years you can't teach us anything new well he could and so we started producing new shapes new trailer designs and metallic and pearl gel coats and a few years later, uh, when he left and moved down to Sydney, it, he rang me up one day and he said, oh, I was down the Sydney Boat Show and there's a company there and they've got all these metallic and pearl, gel, metallic gel coats. And he's gone, oh, these are very interesting. Uh, and the rep says, oh, yeah, we've invented these and uh, uh, we've got a copyright on them. And he said, oh, that's fairly good. Where's your Silver oh, we haven't got the silver ready yet because it's a little bit difficult. And he's opened his wallet and pulled out one of my cards. And he said, Heck, this is my ex-boss. Give him a call. We've been doing it for about 10 or 15 years. And his face just went all to pieces because their patents weren't worth anything after that because we'd already done it. You can only paint a new patent. And we didn't tell anybody. It was our product. Did you think about patenting the, the invention? Ah, uh, no, no, but I didn't tell anybody how to do it because my competitors would love to know how I did it. Still? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's actually quite easy, but it's not something that you can do on a big scale. We made products that were a, a metre and a half long by a metre wide, and you could spray them up. You start doing caravan panels or boats, no, you you just got into trouble and it just didn't work. Sort
0: of like a boutique product.
1: Yeah, it was a boutique product. I made big boys toys. You know that's what they wanted. They wanted they want the pizzazz and just present the product that they want. We used to have trailers in the showroom. We'd have five or six lined up and they'd have all the stainless trims all polished up and metallics and pearls. You'd have blues and reds and silvers and light greys. And they'd walk in the door and go, wow, too late. They're sold. You just had to get the one that matched their bike. Or or, or. they wanted it, no matter
0: what, Didn't, without even looking at the price. What are these guys carting around in their trailers? Oh. Because I don't think I've seen too many. Camping equipment. It,
1: you know if you go camping on a bike there's not a lot of stuff you can carry on a bike especially if you've got a pillion on the back and I know a lot of them their their vanity bag is a big priority you know so it just made camping on a motorbike just much more fun you could put your your pillow off your bed now you, you go camping and you got your pillow off your bed at home you just sleep better tables chairs a decent tent that you can stand up and and put your pants on like a human being instead of lying around on the floor trying to pull your jeans on or something like that. <laughs> all those little little niceties all used to fit into a trailer. The trick was making the trailer tow like it wasn't there, be wasn't there, which we which we managed to do. Uh, we had lots of people come back and say, towing one of our classic trailers is it, it, like it's on rails. It just tows behind the bike.
0: How did you attach it to the bike? With a obviously, tow bar? Obviously with a tow bar, but how did you attach the tow bar to the bike?
1: They bolt on. We, we make tow bars. We've got over 300 design tow bars. And when I first bought Classic, I think we had 10 tow bars, 10 models. And now we've got 300, maybe 350 models. So you're still in that business? We still make the tow bars, but we don't make the trailers anymore i've still got the equipment to make trailers but i'd like to sell it off to a father and son to to keep it going a- and they'd get the tow bars and the trailer as a big package because they 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 fit together and and one without the other is, is really work, a, yeah. it is really a dead loss um i've had several people want to make them nobody's a few have come to the factory, but uh, a few. I've just gone. What are you looking at this business for? Like, do you like motorbikes? No, I don't like motorbikes. Well, why are you interested in a motorbike trailer business? No, or oh, I hate fiberglass. Well, get lost. <laughs> you know, and you've got to be able to make stuff these days. You know, create it with your hands. Make stuff. Getting very hard to find people that can make stuff.
0: What do you put that down to?
1: Education and school. You know, they've taken away, to me, taken away the the technical classes out of schools. Okay. When I went to school, sure, it was in New Zealand. When you're 11 and 12, you're in an intermediate school, and they found out what you did well whether you were good at woodwork or engineering or you're good at uh, arithmetic and maths and geography that would be the decider on your next level of high school of where they were going to point you and they only sort of pointed you Uh, then they refined it a bit more as you as you got older in high school you're better at woodwork or you're better at engineering so they increase your classes in in woodwork or engineering um, because that's you're good with your hands or or whatever and that separated the the academics from the people that could
0: make stuff. Most people though that can make stuff and are handy with their hands they go into a trade, do you think that's not happening happening enough? Yeah but it's in school you get
1: that boost along. Um, I remember in our woodwork school um, and then in your in your early school years it was called woodwork and then it became carpentry school the, your carpentry classes and in your early stage it was metalwork but in high school it was engineering classes so you got that little bit of distinction but in in the intermediate school everybody did everything including the girls they were in the, the woodwork and the, the metalwork classes as well and you went to the cooking and sewing classes as well so you learned how to Feed yourself in cooking. Just feed yourself. Just make toast and bake beans and whatever. Just be able to feed yourself. And you learn how to sew a button on a shirt and do a repair. Just common skills that I think everybody should have as, as growing up schools. The girls in in Woodwick learned what a claw hammer was. They learned how to nail a hammer in. They learned how to use a hacksaw, do a little bit of soldering. Just Basic basics, but, you know, a little bit of knowledge to get you in trouble, baby, but basic basics. Nowadays, you get young kids that are 17 and 18, and, and I've had a few at my factory, sort of like a, a job familiarity from the schools. Work experience. Well, that's probably what it would have should have been. <laughs> and, and they don't know what a file is. They don't know what a hammer is. They have. They don't know that there's about 10 different types of hammers and a, a range of files in the engineering shop. They're just not there. That's stuff that we learnt in, in basic schooling. But the education system now goes, oh, that's for the employer to teach. The employer shouldn't be teaching basic stuff like that. He wants to refine it and and get them going. but Get them working. Not teaching them kindergarten stuff. And and that's that's the sad thing. Our young people can't build stuff anymore and I think Australia's paying for it and they're going to pay for it for a long time if they don't fix it. That's my view. Because we find it, very hard for us to get people into maybe buying my business and it's a, the trailer business is a really good business to buy because they can't make stuff without a CAD drawing oh where are your drawings for your trailers there were no drawings it was a sketch a basic sketch on a piece of paper oh well that looks pretty
0: good we'll make that and set the platform up and build it You talk about uh, young people and education and, you know, getting into something like uh, manufacturing. What about young people and bees? Is it something that uh, young people are getting into? Yeah,
1: there's a few young people getting to bees and they love it. I've got some of my youngest beekeepers are eight and nine years old. (laughs) Really? Yeah, and they're the beekeeper because mum and dad are not into it. It's, It's... The young fella's got the bee suit, and it's not just the boys. The girls got one as well, and they're the beekeeper. Uh, Mum and dad stand away and look, and they do it all. And um, my first young fella, George, I actually had him a suit specially made and flowing out for him for his um, Christmas present. Yeah, the grandma and grandpa bought all the equipment for him. Mum and Dad bought the bee, the bees, the beehive, and Grand Grandpa and and Grandma bought all the the bee suit and the smoke and all the tools. Yeah, it was great. And How did he go? Oh, he's he's still beekeeping. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we had this this we measured him up, and I I rang up my uh, good friend and who makes my bee suits, and said, can you please make one of these and send it over? And she did because she. She loves making bee suits for kids. I think it's great.
0: You talk about uh, the expansion of uh, bees and more people are coming in to your shop. I've noticed since I first went in there many years ago that it's turned around from a very small area to a very large area now. Is it going to continue to grow?
1: Uh, That's a really hard one because I've basically grown it out of the, the shop's I would have to sell off one of the other businesses. I'd have to get rid of the, the motorcycle trailers and tow bars to use up that space to expand the shop a little bit more. But I think we've got the shop to about where we need it to go. Um, I think out the back needs to be refined more in the, in the workshop. We can make better if we lose some of the other work that we do we have more time to do more bee stuff. but I like modern technology going into beehives, which is very difficult. Trying to get new technology into anything agriculture is is a hard job. I've got my new composite bee boxes come out, which are going very well. No painting, well finished, and again, completely different from the other beekeeping um, shops around they're they're beautifully assembled they're shiny they're smooth nice big dome stainless steel screws on the side bit of pizzazz in them a lot of my beekeepers have one or two hives so they they want it to look nice it's beside their house they don't want an old white box they like the little gable roof and they like the shiny bits People are like bowelbirds. It's the same in the motorcycle industry. They're like birds. They like shiny shit. <laughs> <laughs> Is it an expensive hobby to get into? Well, compared to what? Is, what what's expensive? If you're broke, yes. <laughs> it depends on your disposable income before it becomes expensive. I've got customers that come in and just go, I want one of, these, one of these, one of these, one of these, and all this, and, and here's the black card, thanks very much, It's to get on it, and no flinching. I have other customers come in who are struggling and they need another box and are struggling. So we, we source them maybe a secondhand box from out the back to get, get them out of their little bind for a, for, for a couple of weeks. It's, it's what do you call expensive? That's a that's personal question. To me, that's a personal question. And that goes back to my when I was making classic trailers. On what's an expensive trailer, I have customers that come in and, owe, oh, $2,500 for a trailer. Oh, I can buy a trailer for 600 bucks. You can. You can buy a box trailer or a kit set one out of Bunnings, for 600, will it tow? No, is it waterproof? No, will it fall apart? Yes, okay. uh, what's its resale value? Nothing, or you buy a classic trailer and you could probably sell it for more than, more than you bought it for second hand in 12 months time. And we, we went to a Harley Davidson rally with a load of trailers and they've just come, man, these are cheap. Because Harley have already taught them that everything's going to cost them a fistful of money. You know, you've got to get to that that level of of motorcycling to get into the to the hog club, because Harleys aren't the cheapest bike around, and you go into any Harley Davidson uh, group and HD stands for hundreds of dollars. <laughs> So, so, you know, we just presented a product that was reasonably priced, and and
0: we sold a lot of them to Harley owners, and they loved them. You bought the motorcycle trailer business. Why? Are you a motorcyclist? Um,
1: I was then. I, I still am a motorcyclist, but I don't get to ride my bike or bikes like I haven't for years because I'm just so tied up with the businesses. and. Um, I was actually making motorcycle trailers before the other company that I bought was, and then they were mates of mine, and it came up for sale, and I've just gone, oh, I'll buy this. I was working for the Namble Sugar Mill at the time, and um, I was on casual, so there were six months of the year we, we did. I was out of work, so. My accountant said, are you buying yourself a job or are you buying yourself a business? And it was a bit of both. So, but uh, it was successful. You know, uh, we brought two kids up. We took them on overseas holidays every year and, and it had expanded and expanded and expanded. So, um, yeah, it was all right. And, and I think it's the sales figures have gone back probably 20 years because of the, the, the world economics and the, the economy of, of the place at the time. But it's still there, we're still getting customers ringing us up, oh we want to buy one of your trailers. You know, this, the market's still there, hmm. but hopefully somebody will pick it up and run with it and, and they'll have a ball. It's a great business, it's a great market. Better than just a great business, it's a great market. Your customers are wonderful people.
0: What sort of motorbikes do you have?
1: Uh I'm a a usually a winghead, what they call a wing nut. I like gold wings. They're big, reliable, bulletproof, <laughs> smooth, quiet, easy to handle. Stereo. Yeah, all that stuff. Bit of bling.
0: Panniers, the whole lot. Yeah,
1: I mind you, but I don't cover it with with aftermarket chrome stuff. I just I'm just happy with the the, the bike as it is. But um yeah, it's it's a, most people are, are content with a bike that they've had and not had trouble with,
0: um, usually. There's the old saying that uh, if you're in a Harley, you've got to also own, the, own a ute <laughs> so you can go pick it up. Obviously well, the other saying, what if, I don't know whether we should put that one on, <laughs> what
1: if Harleys and cattle dogs haven't come in? They both like coming home in the back of the Ute after a day's yeah. run, <laughs> but that's not fun. No, it's not fair because you know Harleys have.
0: They've become more reliable over the Oh, abs-
1: absolutely! The last ten or fifteen years is, is big gains in reliability and and quality and all sorts of stuff. And 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 a big job to do that too to pull them out of out of their bad name of, of stuff like that. That was mega job, um, but there's so many bikes it's not just harleys people love their suzuki's or ducati's or because that's their brand they get that's that's their bike and and their car owners are the same that people love fords and people love holdens um it's it's your passion it's it's a personal thing more than just um a branding but it usually comes from what you've had for a long time and and no trouble you know, if, if, if it's
0: been good to you, you usually like them. Bees have been good to you over the years. Why do you think that the trailer business has sort of been to a degree put to the side and the bees expanded at such a rapid rate? Uh,
1: the trailer business and the motorcycle trailer business and tobas was down because of the economy. And I needed something else to fill the void.
0: It was good the bank got behind you.
1: No, no we don't deal with that bank with the bees
0: but when they sort of said just do it no that was manager. the
1: bank manager said do it we don't that that bank has nothing to do with the beekeeping side that's another bank we've <laughs> <laughs> all together they have they don't have their finger in that at all um she she was the one that sort of gave me the the nudge to go do it um but I think it was a lot of right place, right time was a, a critical thing. Uh, and, and Yeah, I think that would be a, a, a lucky thing, or maybe not so lucky, but right place, right time. The Sunshine Coast has a lot of beekeepers, enormous amount of beekeepers for the area. Our closest beekeeping shop is, is quite a distance away. And people having to travel quite a long way. So right beside the highway. So we even get customers from Gladstone, Rockhampton, coming down, travelling to Brisbane, and we're just off the highway. They, it's a gift. We're basically the only shop on the highway, probably beekeeping shop, maybe even down to closer to Sydney Way. now You know, all the others you have to go a fair way off the highway to get, or into the city to get. And we were. You know, yeah, and then you we're right beside the highway actually.
0: do people like to actually physically look and hold and touch and palpate as it were uh, yeah that's
1: that's come from my time in retail. Um, people like to have choice, they love to be able to pick up, touch, feel, compare and uh, and just look at a product going into a shop and saying. I'd like one of these. No problem, we'll order one in for you. You Might get there and it might be a lemon. You might get it and you go, that's not what I want. Yes, but you ordered it, it's yours. You've got to pay for it because we got it in specially for you. Well, I carry, for extractors for instance, I carry two frame, four frame, four frame electric, six frames, six frame electric, a new one that we just got in 24 volt, 240 volt and a manual in a combination for people off the grid
0: How popular is that one going?
1: Haven't sold one yet (laughs) But people off the grid aren't a common customer
0: Yeah But
1: I only bought two but um, they'll sell What are you manufacturing in the B equipment? Uh, All my extractors I buy without legs their stands because we make stainless steel trolleys in-house which are more stable because once you're finished extracting you need to wash it out so we make it so you can wheel it outside and hose it out other ones you have to carry and on their three little legs which is the predominant what they put extractors on for stability is the legs are just not strong enough they wobble and shake all over the place so the stainless steel trolleys are hugely popular Uh, The uncapping trays, we make the stands for them, make them all work height. Uh, We make bee stands to put your hives on. So when you're working on your hive, it's work height. You stop the bending over. Uh, Just simple things that if you're going to make it, put a little bit of thought into it and make it easier. Really important thing, there's enough work in beekeeping without sort of putting bricks in your way. Just make them easy nice aluminium handles on the B-boxes, so you can hold them quite easily instead of the standard ones, which are routed holes that you can barely get three fingers in. You know, In a 40 kilo box, you gotta pick it up with three fingertips on each side. And we just put good handles on uh, to make it user friendly. You also Uh, deal with the half frame. Yeah, that's a thing that I like, half depth frames. And we still get people uh, that headbutt them because, oh, no, I'm running full dips, you know, I'll stay with full dips. Half dips I like because the weight of them, when they're they're full, they're only 25 kilos. They're easy to use. They're easy to uncap. You get two in your extractor instead of... You can double up in your extractor. Um, The little kids can use it. The lady beekeepers can use it. And and so many of the older beekeepers, men and women, that are coming back or want to get it into their retirement, half dip boxes are just user friendly for them because the my beekeeping instructor teacher, you know, he's eighty one. He uses half dips. He's eighty one, still beekeeping. How important is it to have a mentor in the beekeeping world? Oh, that's. That's a really good thing to have. I have a couple of mentors. Bill, that is my mentor locally, uh, he is an ex-professional beekeeper, um, but he's locally, he's down the road. But I had another one up in Townsville that was a professional beekeeper too, and a, a customer from the motorcycle trailer business that i found out that he had bees as well and basically tell you anything that you need to know most most professional beekeepers are like that or beekeepers are like that that will help you very few won't give you the time of day
0: but most of them if you've got a problem they'll help you do they encourage to try and expand your beekeeping horizon
1: yeah they try to help you in any way if you've got a question just ask if you don't know ask I don't have a problem if people on anything if 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 you don't know ask if if you know and you do it wrong well you're an idiot what's the hardest thing about beekeeping probably lifting up the full depth supers because they're so heavy in in my apiary site because I don't use full depth supers the hardest thing um, well, that's what I try to take away. Uh, in my whole businesses, I try to eliminate hard jobs. And even in, in the fiberglass business, all, of, all the molds were on wheels. So you just, it was a one-man operation. You could pick one end up and wheel it outside or wheel it over the side and bring the other one in. In the assembly, everything had to be able to be moved easily by one person. And it's about making jobs easy. And the same in the bee industry. Make the boxes smaller and easier to use. Make them the stands the right height so they're easier to use. Hard jobs don't get done. That's just human nature. They just get put aside. Uh, I had to help a friend of mine, and he had four supers, four full-depth supers on his hives full. What are you doing this for? I was really busy and it was too hard, so I just put another box on the top. (laughs) So here we are trying to lift total stretch because the stands that he had his hives on were just ad hoc, so they were already too high for a start. And then you've got your brood box and four supers on top, so they're five high. Massive. Full. Massive. Yeah, massive, full. You're trying to pick up, 45 kilo boxes at arm's reach you know one on either side bees going mental everywhere and bring them down so we got we extracted all them and we put half dip boxes on now when he can't do it his wife does it because she can
0: manage the half dip boxes make it easy and doesn't wait till there's um that much honey that's it how, what's, the, what's the optimum size for a hive? I've seen a lot of, say, three deck um, with the, fu- the full um, depth supers, but say three two, of them. So two, two, two supers and a brood box. Yeah. yeah. What's the optimum? <coughs> that really
1: does depend on, on where you are in the honey flow. But generally, professional beekeepers will run one brood box and one super occasionally they'll have a second super on if there's a huge honey flow or there's a huge amount of flowers but it's usually one and one um i know when i first started beekeeping we could go one brood box two supers or even three supers and it'd be see you in six months time <laughs> pre small hive beetle but now you have to be in your hive about every three or four weeks which is a Uh, not too often but it's a good space you know about once a month and check your beetle traps they're working that the beetles haven't infested your hive because they can smash a hive in three weeks
0: what what do you do what do you find what what are you looking for is it fairly apparent
1: lots of beetles running around so we still get beekeepers that don't have beetle traps and, and they open the hive and there's 50 or 100 beetles running around, that's nearly not salvageable.
0: If you do see them and you put the trap in straight away...
1: You may, depending on how many beetles there are, you know, um, you need to have traps. You're basically nearly impossible
0: to run beehives without beetle traps these days. You put the uh, diatomaceous earth in under the trap for the basically to kill the beetles
1: yeah the 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 de powder or diatomaceous earth works really well on a screen bottom board so i've got these screen bottom boards where the bees come in the bottom entrance and there's a stainless steel mesh and it's 3.3 millimeter mesh so the bees can't actually get through the mesh but the beetles can and the bees chase the beetles through the mesh and they fall onto the tray with diatomaceous earth on it. And they basically get it all over them. Beetles only have uh, grips or or hooks on their front two legs and the powder just builds up into like balls and they get it under their wings and legs and and they're basically snookered. They they, they can't move and they just dehydrate because it's a dry powder so it will just dry things. Uh, that's really good because if you've got grubs hatching out too, if you, you've got grubs in your hive of small hive beetle grubs, they'll hatch out and they'll fall down and they'll get into the diatomaceous, they'll, they'll die as well. And when you're finished, you just chuck the diatomaceous earth on the ground because it's good for your soil. It's, it's a natural, it's an inert product. So no, no chemicals, no nothing like that. So that's easy. Um, well, I think the
0: de is um, uh, fossilized mollusk.
1: Yes, yes, from uh, forty million years ago. Like, like plankton, I think similar, similar thing. Um, then you can have uh, oil traps. There's a there's another company that makes an oil trap instead of diatomaceous earth. You can put. Um, some sort of cooking oil or apple cider vinegar underneath does a similar job the beetles fall and basically drown then you can put traps in the in between the frames in the top that can have diatomaceous earth or a cooking oil or apple cider vinegar in them as well I find apple uh cooking oil climbs out of the container just like it does on your kitchen bench you know, you've always got cooking oil under your, under your container of cooking oil. It wants to climb out of the container. It just does what it does. Whereas the apple cider vinegar will stay in there. The containers stay cleaner um, and, and it's a little bit thinner. And it does the same job. The, the, the beetles drown in it and get stuck in the traps. And then w- they've got little flute ones, which are hugely popular in my shop, that you just put four in the corner underneath the lids. And we put cockroach bait in each of them and a very very small amount like enough wouldn't even cover your fingernail on your little finger it's it's a very small amount in each one of them and uh, we sell lots of them people they last about two months and and customers just love them they just come back after after two months they said they're the best ones on the market so pretty pleased about how they work it's the ones that I use the most of but my. you've
0: been fairly uh, innovative with what you've designed for the bottom board.
1: Oh yeah, the my screen bottom board that uh, that I have was a bottom board just made out of wood. That's that's quite readily available. But I've had it out of my composite. I get them made out of my composite material, because I looked at it and thought trying to paint one of those things would be just a nightmare and i'm a painter it would just be a nightmare to to paint it and still make it work you know painting the little track underneath so the draw slides in and out and then painting the board i've gone that's just that's just a headache and people would just do it out of acrylic because it's quick and easy and it would make it harder to use again so I was the first person that had them made out of the the composite and it's worked very well. People love it because one, no paint, take it home, use it. The stainless steel shiny screws on the sides that a bit of care has gone into it matches their their, their box with shiny stainless steel screws and the the little bling, bling (laughs) (laughs) parts. Looks (laughs) good
0: in the backyard.
1: That's it. We're all bow but especially in the shop, all these little shiny things lined up. It's, it's the people's passion. You just go with it. What do you think of flow hives? If we didn't have small hive beetles, that would be that would be a big headache for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they can be quite a problem with small hive beetle.
0: What do you put that down to?
1: The sizzle that the flow hive is sold with. And... It's very good. It's very professionally written and it's very, very well done and they're very well presented. They are very appealing looking B boxes. Do they work? Yes and no. I've got customers, they work fine, and I've got customers they hate them. It's so it's a hard call. I Boards and Holders? No, I would say um A lot of people that buy them have them bought for them as gifts. I have quite a few customers that their wife has bought them or or something like that as a gift. I had one customer in the other day and his wife bought him a flow hive so he'd get back into beekeeping because he wanted. But he said a new extractor would have been far better. (laughs) But now he has both. He has a flow and a langstroth and... He's learning that the bees don't like the flow box, which because it's all plastic. It's the same with plastic frames. The bees don't like plastic frames until you coat them in wax, and beeswax, and then they use them fine. A lot of people get the misconception with um, probably the, the sizzle with, that's presented with the flow. All you have to do is turn the tap at the back and the honey runs out.
0: Well, that's how it was marketed that's how it
1: was marketed and people don't remember the other stuff that goes with it they only remember the easy bit and forget that there's other things that go along with it
0: so what did they forget
1: i don't know whether flow have forgotten to put the information in i think people just ignore it um when they're reading it and um they come into the shop I don't need to do that because I've got a flow hive well yes you do because you're still a beekeeper you still don't need to do what? don't have to look in the bottom box so it makes
0: for lazy beekeepers
1: that's basically it in a nutshell Um, if if they want one hive and only one hive it's pretty ideal for them but they still must look after it like a beekeeper they still must inspect the brood box they still must keep their, their beetle traps un, up, up to speed and things like that. Uh, and that's, that's what a lot of them think they don't have to do. It's a set, set and forget type of thing is, is the impression that they get and they want it, want it to be where, that way. But you know, even Flo will tell you that it's not.
0: What are you looking for when you go into the brood box?
1: The quality of the frames, what they're like um that you've got a good brood being laid by the queen um the the, the frames that the queen's laying to her brood on are in, in good order and not getting too old and dark and black and the bees aren't eating the corners away because they get old and black on the sides and then the brood area gets smaller so you get a weaker hive so then it becomes more susceptible to small hive beetle so it's a catch-22 so you you must rob the bottom the brood box with the honey stores and put new supers in the middle to keep your your brood frames fresh so you get plenty of bees. Strong hive will keep the the small hive beetle at bay fairly well.
0: What about those ones you talk about the old frames in the centre of the, the brood chamber? Mm-hmm. Um what do you do with them do you discard them or do you make new hives out
1: of them if you take the two honey stores out of the brood box which are the two outside frames if you do that once or twice a year when you've got a a honey flow and you put new frames in the middle so the middle ones eventually work to the outside and that's keeping that's getting rid of the old frames in the middle so then they fill them. They eventually get to the outside, and they fill them up with honey. And you can rob them of the honey in those frames. And if the frames aren't any good to reuse again, you can either cut the wax out, put new foundation in, or, or if the frame's no good, you can cut the wax out and burn the frame.
0: What? It's, or just replace it. So if it's full of brood, though, and you say it might be reducing, you've just got to sacrifice it sometimes. They just get pushed out to the
1: sides. So that's why you put new frames in the middle so that the old ones just slowly work, this, work their way out. So the queen's always got nice comb to lay her eggs in. Uh, and mould, that's what you've got to really look for in, in your boxes, is frames
0: with mould on Bees will not touch a a frame with mould on. So when you're putting new frames into the brood box, you put them into the the centre, not to the outside. Yeah, put them in the middle, yeah. What's the biggest mistake that new beekeepers make? Oh, so many. (laughs) But I think that
1: the biggest mistake I find is trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, we've been beekeeping with the Langstroth system for over 100 years. Um, and even a flow is a basic Langstroth system. And they come up with new things and they're trying to reinvent it. Like after 100, re- 100 years, it, they've just about got all the bugs out. And if you don't try to reinvent the wheel and just go with it for a while, it'll work. It, you, it'll work. Um, I just put something very similar to that on my Facebook page. Someone said, what problems will I have as a new beekeeper? I said, don't try to reinvent the wheel, the, the wheel and you'll, you'll do fine. Just go along with what's what people are using now and it will work. Things like the new uncapper that you've got to hold in your hand and put against your body and uncap it's messy a hot knife is so clean and easy or a cold knife they're just uncapping into a bucket but the demonstration of trying to uncap inside a bucket with a frame and a long knife is like it's impossible but people fall for those silly demonstrations i think we've got most of the bugs out But there's all sorts of new stuff coming out. Spiky rollers, so you don't have to You have an uncapping knife. So you run the spiky roller. And sure, it does. It it pierces all the honey cells. And does the honey spin out? Not efficiently, because it's only got a hole. You haven't taken the whole cap off. So they're harder to spin out. Yes, but I don't have wax cappings to deal with. Wax cappings are an important part in the beekeeping industry because we buy them to melt them down to make beeswax foundation sheets, and it's part of that. But we get people go, oh, "I didn't have many, so I just throw them away," uh, which, when you start to think of of how the bees make the wax, it's a real waste of of a product that your bees have spent all that time making. They want the honey because they want. They want that bit, but they're throwing an important part away because they've only got a little bit. I buy wax off my customers. Some of them come in with half a kilo in a block. I don't care. Doesn't matter to me whether it's half a kilo or 200 kilos. It goes into my wax melter, which holds 240 kilos, and it all turns to liquid. It's, It's all used again. None
0: of it's wasted. You said a little while ago that you're a painter. Is that your trade? Because you've sounded, from what you said, you've worked in David Jones, the, the Nambour Mill, um, your motorcycle business, your bee business. What do you put all that down to? I Jack of all trades, master of plenty? I was um, painting when I was
1: in school with my father. So by the time... Time I was 17 and stopped stopped working with Dad and got, got another job for something else to do. You you were already a master painter by that time. We didn't have holidays. You went to work. That was that's what you did. You know, uh, my father was painting uh, s- housing commission houses, and school holidays come and you, you went to work and became a painter and wallpaper. and. Um, it, it's a good thing to know, is how to paint. And then later I learned how to spray paint. At, 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 when I was at Ford, um, they put you in a, in a booth. Here's a gun. <laughs> if you're there at lunchtime, you can stay there. If you're not, you'll never get back in there because they've done all the prep work, and if you can't make paint hang on the side of a car in four hours, you're not going to get it. No. What's the trick? Don't put too much on. <laughs> you put too too much on, it falls off. It's pretty simple. Um, but yeah, listen to the guys that are teaching you. Um, but some people can't do it. It's it's you, you can either do it or you can't. It's, it's 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 that's how it is. So there's an art to it. Oh yeah, yeah. You, like n- not everybody can pick up a, a spray gun. Even if all the work's done, and, and just start painting a car, it's you'll put lines all over it, and all the paint won't be even, and it'll have shadows and dull spots, and not enough here and flat there, and, and running off there. So, uh, even though all the groundwork's done for you, and all the, you've got the best equipment that you could ever want for, uh, it, there's some people that can't do it. So you're still a Ford man. No, I only work for Ford. Yeah. <laughs> favourite car? I don't know whether I have a favourite car. I like my Crosley. Not many people have got one of those. It's a 1928 Crosley Chelsea. How often do you take that out? I don't. If it's a basket case, <laughs> it needs a complete rebuild. <laughs> but it's one of the Queen Mum's cars when she came to Australia with the, the, the King. The actual car that you own? Oh, yeah, they brought a handful of them over in the Britannica. Um, amazingly enough, they had, I'm not sure of the number, but it was like 18 cars, 18 Crosleys in the Britannica Hull when they came to uh, South Africa, Australia and New Zealand on the, on, the, on the tour. And they left some in South Africa, some in Australia and some in New Zealand. And you
0: managed to uh, collect one of
1: them? Uh, was that a score or what? <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> Fluke. Was in the, the. I had a mate of mine. I ha- what did I have? I had an EH Holden that I wanted to, to rebuild. And, and a mate of mine says, that's not your car. That's just not you. He says, you want an old car? Because he knew me. He a, knew the style that I wanted, the, the nice running boards coming down and the older style. But a nice car. No particular brand was in mind. Just that type of car, 1930, 40 style. And um, he was at the markets in Gympie one time, and a guy had a little picture of it. Not even the car, just a little A4 picture. Mm. And he rang me up and he says, I found your car. (laughs) So, um, yeah, we, we bought it and what's the uh the future of that crossley um i need to build another shed i think and just start start doing it it's it's very complete but run down you know it's just it's 100 years old (laughs) (laughs) it's allowed to be tired so um so you're going to do a frame up restoration Uh, Yeah, the hard part is getting um, body frames because it's a timber frame, timber body. You know, there's not one book published in the world that teaches how to rebuild timber-bodied cars. Wow. I find that extraordinary. I've searched and searched and searched and uh, my friend that's a coach builder, he said, there isn't one. You can do the chassis, you can do the wiring, you can do the engine. But they missed coach building because the the coaches were built by coachmen from that used to build horse coaches, and then they went on to car coaches, and then in two years they swapped to metal bodies. Is it like an elaborate carpentry? I couldn't tell you on that one because I'm not I'm not a woodman.
0: What are you going to do to get uh, the frame sorted? Uh, duplicated.
1: Uh, the frame's still there. It's just parts of it rotted away, but the other side's fine. So I've already bought an old bandsaw that used to be in a furniture shop. So it's a big bandsaw with a, a big throat on it. So I've got got that um, because that's what you'll need to cut out the, the patterns. So um, th- that and somebody who's a bit clever with wood, um, yeah, that's basically it. And you just duplicate it. I've made another cradle already, so you can I've lifted the body off and put it on another cradle and I made another cradle the same as the chassis. so the body would sit straight um, and that's what they used to do is they made the the bodies on cradles and then the chassis come along and they just dumped it on pretty much how they make cars now but but old made made out of wood and beautifully made like. The interior lights, cut glass. You know, really, it's, it's just little cut. This little cut glass dome, and the wire runs down, to this little round brass toggle switch, that you you need to have, you know. And the the instruments are, are bevelled glass instruments. Not so you only get that in, in expensive cars, because the Crosley was the royal car before Rolls Royce. But the Crosley brothers um, basically went broke because they gave so much money away. When the Depression came, they, they just ran out of dollars. They gave, I think they gave £660,000 in 1925 28, those errors which today's money is... Massive. Is massive amount. It's <laughs> millions and millions, to General Booth. General Booth started the Salvation Army. Okay. So General Booth was going to Africa, Australia, New Zealand, to the colonies as the Salvation Army because of the, the Crosley family was a very, very religious family, a, as a lot of them were in those days, and the Crosley brothers lost some of their children to... To childhood diseases like diphtheria and 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 whooping cough and all those things that were quite common in those days and didn't matter whether how much money you had had no influence on whether your children got those diseases and, and lived or died. Talk, talking before the Second World War, and and, and that time, that they w- wasn't there. That that sort of technology that we take for granted these days wasn't there, and so it had a big effect on them. But uh, yeah. And like Crosley stationary engines, I have some of those too. They're built to last forever, and they still
0: do. And you're still looking for more? Ah, no, I've got a got half a dozen in the shed. That's enough, I think. You're also a Taekwondo black belt. Hmm. Why did you? What what was the attraction for Taekwondo back in the day? Um. I was at, I was, when I was at
1: Ford, uh, one of my fellow workers w- was, started doing it. And he said, come on down, because he lived around the corner. He said, come on, come with me. So I did, and it just kept going. Hmm. And how far did you go? Um, I've, I used to be an instructor in one of the schools, um, but it got a little bit political.
0: As it can do in the martial arts oh, world.
1: I, I, I hear that quite often. <laughs> it gets, and it's, apparently it's not, uh, it's, it's not just our school. It's across the board on, on most martial arts. It can get a little bit political, which is
0: really sad. Yes, it is. But you're back into it and re-found your passion. How did that come about? Um,
1: one of my customers walked in the door and we're looking at each other going, I know you, and he's going, You look familiar, yeah. but we can't remember it. And then my my beekeeping teacher, who's eighty-one, Bill, he's also my taekwondo teacher, um, walked in and Glenn looks around and goes, Bill, Steve, Glenn. <laughs> We're all into bees, or Glenn's just starting to get into bees and 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 we're all sort of retired Taekwondo teachers. And uh, Glenn's saying, oh, I still try to do, but it would be good if I had somewhere to do it that wasn't just at home in the garage, was, you know, to do it with somebody, it's always, you always put more passion into it rather than doing it by yourself. And I said, no problems, we can, we got the facilities, let's do it. So we started doing it. And um, it's been great, we've been doing it for, about three or four months now. And yeah, I feel a lot better um, getting my flexibility back. And that's the sc- hard
0: thing as you get older.
1: <laughs> that's an understatement. You know, when I was uh, um, when I was teaching, we used to do, you know, 50 push-ups and 100 sit-ups and I could nearly do the splits. And that was just a matter of course, I'd always been like that. And then first night, I go 15 pushes and I get it one and I go, oh, a <laughs> bit, bit out of shape. And Even though I'm f- reasonably fit because I've got a scrap metal yard and, you know, if you're in the scrap metal yard throwing bits of steel around you, know, <laughs> you keep some sort of um, strength. But Probably lucky you did. Probably, but but it's been good going back and doing it and learning all your patterns again. But Lucky we don't have to start from the scratch and learn all the movements and where to put your hands and legs and things like that you just got to put the combinations back to
0: order yeah. you've done so many things in your lifetime say working at the Nambour sugar mill working at ford working at david jones and i'm sure numerous other jobs what have you got to achieve now what do you what would you like to do before you you pull the bales? oh see that was a
1: that was a a, a big thing um, when I was at Ford, the guys in, in Ford said to me, uh, what are you going to be doing in 25 years, Steve? Uh, and it, would, it wasn't just me, it was about everybody. And I said, oh, my plan is to have a big house on uh, acreage and uh, a big shed at my house and a big factory and and they're going to do it. And I said, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I have not, but that's my plan. That's That was my big picture, okay, to have that. But in front of your big picture, for everybody, uh, and one of my neighbours told me that, you have your big picture, but in front of the big picture, there's a whole myriad of small pictures that you have to go through for f- and fulfil till you get to your big picture. And I think a lot of young people don't realize this and they're not taught this because the marketing today is you can have it now have it now and pay for it later Uh, in the real world that doesn't work anyway so that was my goal of 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 a big house on a small property and a, a big shed at my house and and a factory and a big shed what I was going to do I had no idea and They've all gone, oh, yeah, you're going to be working here at Ford until you bloody retire like the rest of us. Well, Ford's gone. That plant shut down is now Alcan, aluminium or something, or Windows or G. James Glass or something. And everybody's gone, so whatever. Um, but I've got my big picture. I've got my big house. There's a big shed at my house and a small acreage. And I got my big factory, um, and I got my factory as classic trailers and making stuff. And then I ran out of things to do. Like, it stopped. I had, I, I had no vision of, like, you've got to have a goal to is keep it going.
0: Is that why you filled the picture in? Because you kept, are you focused on, Well, were you focused on that big picture? You know, you're not focused
1: on it. It's, it doesn't take up all your space. That's, that's the goal at the end. Other pictures in the front, you have to deal with first to be able to get there. But it's, it's, it's there in the background. And then once I got to it, it was like, it's like you're on a journey and you get to your destination. And you go, OK, you're here now. And I've gone... And it was about two years I'm going, what do I do? I, I made the best trailer in Australia. A lot of people told me that and it was the best motorcycle trailer on the market. Um, people say, oh, you've got a big head. But that's what it was the goal, is to make, try to make the best. And you can't go, okay, now you make the best, sit back, because somebody will push you off the perch. Do we need a big head though to achieve in this life? No, you just got to have pride in your product. You know, and my customers were nice people. they were motorcyclists, so it was always pleasant. I think in 30 years of making motorbike trailers, I had two horrible customers, you know. Most of them were really nice people. You know, oh, if you're ever down here, drop in and we'll stay at our bloody, we've got a spare room and you can stay there and camp there as long as you like. Don't worry, just come on down. All over Australia, have got customers like that. Just tell you all the time. We never managed to get there, but... But that's the type of people you'd be dealing with most of the time. But then I got to the big picture before the B Shop, and I'm sort of at a loss what to do. And I thought, oh, maybe I'd like to do the B Shop, you know, and going, oh yeah, that might be a good retirement business. It's not not so uh, physically demanding. I'm not having to drive around the country in my truck, you know, taking, doing motorbike rallies and displays and stuff like that. Uh, and then, then the bank manager goes, "Do it." So we started that, and now I'm doing that. That's my retirement business, basically. Has it got out of hand? Well, it's looking that way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, is there a succession plan?
1: Uh no, no. The, the two girls not really interested in it. Um. And don't have any boys <laughs> otherwise I'd, they'd probably have a motorcycle business, a motorcycle trailer business running But yeah that's a bit of a worry um, but at the moment my brother in New Zealand is interested in bailing out of his panel shop that he's done since he was a re- apprenticed and looking for something fresh and beekeeping sounds attractive but coronavirus come along and that was the end of getting younger brother over here and teaching him and beekeeping and but there may be a possibility of going bee positive international
0: you are a mentor to many as they say a wingman not only on the motorcycle but in the beekeeping world you are a wingman and teaching many and Steve Kitney, I thank you for joining us over the bonnet thank you very much for having me and it's a pleasure this podcast is brought to you by Marymark Medical. Marymark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specializing in quality family medical care. Are you always sick? Ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions. When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Merrimark Medical. Contact MerryMark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specializes in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose fitting foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. Now, they'll help you get down and dirty and save your feet with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it in for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount, and you'll receive 10% off the price. That's right, 10%. Only for over the bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. That's at Gimpy Foam and Rubber. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAT Earth Moving, that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big. And their posi-track, Bobcat, is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, 8-ton and a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side-track hire and even have a roller and a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at Earth Moving on 0488 228806 and the Earth will move for you.